Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. This is the first episode in a four-part reading series. Dude, that's crazy. It's four parts. You know, I tried everything I could to make it three parts, but it was just not possible. Yeah, it uh, it was a, a, a terrific night and tons of great content, but yeah, four, four parts. So, uh, listeners, this is our gift to you. You get one extra bonus episode. As a matter of fact, I think this is the first time we're giving one particular reader his own episode. It's not the first time. <laughs> no, it's not. Did we do this for the same person the last time? Is that what happened? And the time before. <laughs> and I believe the time before that. No, no, there is one where he's on with another person, but he's got at least two others that are he, solo, I think. Did the other person complain? Is that what happened? <laughs> well, uh, uh, we'll talk more about this in episode three, I'm sure. But tonight, we are proud to bring you part one of Noir at the Bar Indianapolis, the inaugural Noir at the Bar Indie, uh, my understanding, correct? First one of its kind. Wonderful. So we, we uh, the booked team hopped in the booked mobile and, <laughs> uh, and drove uh, through the uh, crossroads of America um, to beautiful Indianapolis, where uh, we... Yeah. What, are you sighing? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I'm thinking the other side of, of Indiana, like not the side that we come from, probably looks much nicer. Is that right? Did we get the crappy side of Indiana, like up against Illinois? Like it's all mountains and like, you know, beautiful lakes and stuff? Mm-hmm. And no. uh, when we're, so, oh, okay. Because all we saw were rusty bridges, <laughs> um, rusty old factories. As a matter of fact, Rob had said some machinery in a factory was likely to take over the world in the coming years. Yeah. Like a Skynet style. Um, <laughs> but we went to the Fountain Square Brewing Company in Indianapolis, um, which was very, very cool. Um, I considered, um, after seeing some Facebook comments, just telling people they recorded this at a meth lab. Because that's uh, apparently <laughs> what everybody thought of the pictures we posted with the actual beer brewing machines in the background. The funny thing, too, I was thinking when I was looking at some of the pictures we have is the angle that I was taking pictures from. There's like a set of stairs that come down from the top of one of those like brewing tanks. Mm-hmm. And if if you cut off the the image properly, it looks like we're like in a basement, and those are the stairs coming down from like upstairs. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, that's um, it's it's the uh, the big spoiler. This episode's going to be that Breaking Bad. Um, they actually weren't making meth; they were just making like pale ale. <laughs> they were brewing craft beers. Yes, exactly. So, um, <laughs> um, C.J. Edwards headed this up. You'll remember C.J. Edwards from the reading we had uh, the Noir at the Bar Two um, release party in Corydon, Indiana, where uh, where he read a story. He is uh, the the guy now. He's the Indianapolis guy for Noir at the Bar. So, congratulations to Mr. Edwards. You'll be hearing him in one of the uh, upcoming episodes as well. That's right. All right. So the uh, the author that kicks it off for the evening is going to be a gentleman by the name of Clayton Lindemuth. We're not going to read bios um, before we go into the uh, actual reading because everybody has a bio read as part of their introduction. So no sense kind of being redundant with that. Um, but this was our first meeting with him, and um, and he has his book out called Cold Quiet Country. So it was nice to meet him and kind of hear a bit of that book uh, in the reading. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like uh, sounds like really good stuff. We'll talk about that a little more after folks hear the um, the actual story. Um, our second our second reader, um, James Ward Kirk. Now, I only I have to imagine that he probably just went by James Kirk for a really long time <laughs> and decided it was really important to not be known as James Kirk um, anymore. And threw the <laughs> ward in in the middle. 
That might not even be his middle name. His middle name is probably like Thomas. Right, but he couldn't use James T. Yeah. Kirk. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, so uh, James is a publisher and a writer. And interestingly enough, it seems from his bio, at least, that he's probably a little more of the uh, of a horror writer than a noir crime writer. Um, and he uh, he reads probably the most interesting story of of the whole um, of the whole reading because this is a little bit of a of a crossover. It's not just your straight crime. So, uh, very interesting and uh, very nice to meet James Ward Kirk last night. Absolutely, and I think it's kind of cool. Livius and I were talking about this. You'll, well, we might have to talk about this later, but how it was interesting that um, the story that he read from tonight is co-written by him and someone else. So listen for that and see if you could kind of imagine how two authors kind of built this together. I think that would be an interesting thing to think of going into it. Yeah, I'll tell you, probably better than you and I would work together on something like this. <laughs> Well, just one saying. of us would write a bunch of stuff, and the other person would just be like, yeah, it looks good. Yeah, pretty much. There you go. <laughs> um, all right, so first you're going to hear C.J. Edwards kind of introing the whole evening. Um, that'll be Clayton Lindemuth, James Ward-Kirk, and then back to me and Rob. All right, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to Noir at the Bar, Indianapolis. My name is C.J. Edwards. Uh, we've got a really awesome lineup for you. Uh, tonight. Can everybody hear me? Awesome. All right. Good deal. Um, we have a great lineup. Uh, James Ward-Kirk is on his way, I think. Uh, Clayton Lindemuth, Jed, Jedediah Ayers, uh, myself, I'll be reading a story. David James Keaton. Um, and I don't see any of my cop buddies here, so he uh, can relax, I think. If anybody sneaks in, uh, I'll, I'll make sure they check their tasers at the door. Awesome. Uh, Les Edgerton and Scott Phillips, and uh, yes, awesome. Uh, I want to thank uh, the Fountain Square Brewery for hosting us. Uh, if you haven't had a beer, please get one. It's awesome. Uh, I want to thank Do It Indie. Scott from Do It Indie will be here uh, a little later to help me out with the door prizes. If you have not got a ticket, uh, raise your hand and we'll get you a ticket for the giveaways. Anybody not have a ticket? Couple right over there. Uh, just a quick word about Noir at the Bar. It was started by Peter Rosowski. Did I say that correctly? Rosowski. Peter Rosowski. Thank you, Jen. He started this in Philadelphia, I think. That's where he's from, anyway. Uh, so we want to give a shout out to him for starting this. It's pretty awesome. Uh, I've been to a couple of these, and they they, they, are, they do tend to get pretty good, pretty rowdy. If anyone in here is not offended at least once during the night, please let me know, and I'll take care of that for you. Uh, all right, on to our readers. I think uh, our first reader tonight was going to be James Ward Kirk, but he's not here yet, so we're going to move on down the lineup to uh, Clayton Lindemuth. Clayton is from St. Louis. He lives there with his wife and his dog. Uh, he's the author of Cold, Cold, Quiet Country, which you can buy up here afterward. Uh, Jed said, Jedi Air said it is badass. So uh, I'm probably going to grab a copy of that before the night is out. Uh, it received a publisher, Publisher's Weekly starred review. Um, it was a Publisher's Weekly Book of the, book of the Week. Uh, and it was also... Uh, on the Indie Next list, uh, and he has another book out in the spring. Uh, 
an interesting little tidbit when I when I heard that uh, Clayton was interested in coming to Indianapolis. Uh, I was actually at a crime. I'm, I'm a local police officer. For those of you who don't know me, I was actually on a crime scene when uh, Jedediah Ayers texted me about Clinton Lady Move, and I was actually standing over a uh, almost dead body. He was expiring when I got the message. So I know it's kind of grim, but it actually kind of fits the, uh, the the night's event. And uh, so, uh, without any further ado, uh, Clayton Lindemann. stupidity folks I want to set this up just a little bit Jed told me last time I read this section that I don't really have to set it up because it kind of is self-explicative this book deals with uh, a pedophile I discovered in uh, 2000 and turned to 11 as a spinal tap reference I discovered in 2001 that my grandfather was a pedophile, and it was about two weeks after he died. So it was like too late, you know, you couldn't go back and kill him. And so uh, this book deals with a character that is pulled out of that experience. And so whenever you hear ugliness going on that you don't quite get the full reference of in this section, that's what it's referring to, that kind of ugly shit. Liz mounts her rumbling snowmobile. I slip behind her, grateful for the seat back that supports the weight of the duffel, and press my pelvis snug into Liz. Liz, she nestles against me. I position the Craig across her legs and do my best to hold both it and her as she lays her duffel of booty across her lap and the heavy Bolins grumbles forward. Between killings, I know I'm about to do another. I yearn for some kind of metaphysical banister because the heights get dizzying. Yearn for something stronger than the golden rule or Murphy's law. I'm on a course that defies everything I've ever learned, yet this course came out of everything I've ever learned. So I don't see how I've erred, and I don't see how I can fail to complete what I've started. I whiff Liz's hair. She must use the same shampoo as Gwen. I first smelled it in the barn loft. At the end of summer, the heat was heavy and the hay was scratchy. Humidity kept our skin flush, and with the dust in the air and the salt in our sweat, it was as if the barn itself chastened us. I smelled her hair then and thought the, the fall, thought of the fall when she would nose against me. As the season got colder, the perfume became more fragile, so the last night Gwen smelled the same as Liz does now, the flowers and the icy air. A whiff brings with it the worry, the smell will freeze like a petal and crumble, and nothing will remain save snowmobile exhaust. We're on top of the hill. The valley is like a ghost, seen through dead twigs and trees. Bert Hauser's barn stands against the fields, and its darkness merges with the swampy forest below the garden. From this vantage, the surrounding hills look less imposing. Somewhere beyond, a, 
a fold, and around another bend waits the Sunday farm. Liz's father maybe wonders about his son and daughter. Liz jockeys back and forth, throws her weight twice as far as normal to offset my mass. She is alive under my arms, her, her thighs continually shift below my hands. The rifle is wobbly like a pole lashed across the top of a buoy. We blaze across an open field. Liz steers diagonally and every second a 12-inch corn stalk thwacks the sled's underbelly. We crest a knoll and there's a house and barn. The porch light beckons. The barn seeps yellow through the gaps in the, in the wall boards and knot holes. A farmer works in a harsh economy, must tend the animals before he can tend his family. Her father will be working with the cows. He'll hear the noise and come out. He'll see the two of us on one sled and imagine his son has returned with his daughter. Will he be angry about the missing snowmobile? Liz trembles below my hands. She slows the snowmobile. We reach the farm at a scant crawl. The trail leads across the flat to the barn. The sled drifts to a stop. Liz kills the engine. The headlight beam vanishes and I smell her hair again. You or me, I say. Me. I press my good hand to her shoulder and dismount the machine. The Craig is loaded and I face the barn. The bay light is on and the tractor door is partway open. A butchered hog hangs from the hind legs. Liz retrieves her rifle from the scabbard on the side of the seat. And standing on the opposite side of the sled, she turns to the barn. In there, I say. She plods forward. Though her first step is short, the next are longer. I clamber around the back of the sled and follow, already ten paces behind. She carries the rifle at port arms, the stock at her right hip, barrel across her chest. A door thuds close behind us. I turn, but Liz keeps walking. Her old man stands on the porch under a light and looks like a yellow dog in flannel and overalls. He holds a pistol in his right hand, loose at his side. He's got hog blood on his arms. Whole county looking for you, boy. Behind me, the sound of Liz's boots on the packed snow ceases. I say, what does a fellow say to that? Liz, come on back here. He watches me. What, boy? You figure to kill one girl's daddy, and when that don't work, you come back for another? Isn't that it? He taps his leg with the pistol barrel. Come here to take me out? How many years of playing the game? of acknowledging another man's strength only because he is willing to break the rules. And how many victims are stronger than the men who subjugate them? How many could rise against the bastards holding the chains to shackle their ankles? How many of those bastards owe their seats of hubris and animosity and greed to the tolerance of their betters? The men and women and daughters who do the toiling and the sweating and the grunting but equate morality with meekness. He raises the pistol toward me. Well, boy? Nah, it's not like that. There was an accident at the How Desserts, and I flipped out. I ran away, and Liz here is the only one who knows the truth of it. And what's the truth of it, Liz? The truth is I'm freezing. Let's go inside. And where's Link? I don't know. He took off with the other sled, and I haven't seen him. And he better bring it back in one piece. And that's what's important. Liz lowers, Sunday lowers his gun and Liz steps beside me. She's dropped the rifle to one hand. Inside, she whispers. I follow, 
Sunday stands aside on the porch and hair raises on the back of my neck as I hear his footsteps behind me. The kitchen air hits me like a wall. Blood rushes to my cheeks and the warm air gives me vertigo. I reach to the countertop and my hand brushes an upside down copy of a tattered newspaper that is no less strident looking for all of its wear. The Daily Worker. It's torn, old, yellowed, folded, open so many times the paper looks like it has peach fuzz. Liz lays her rifle on the kitchen table. God knows how long Sunday's been a red encircled by townsmen with a different take on injustice. They rail against the commies and Sunday points the, to the capitalists manipulating the price of corn and beef and oil and rail cars, except the others have the numbers and Sunday has to turn his insufficient strength against something even more insignificant in the grand scheme, the girl growing into a woman under his roof. She isn't his daughter, she isn't sacred. And placed above his dick. I wash condensation form on the blued metal. Sunday steps inside and closes the door. Liz sits at the table facing him. His eye whites are like busted egg yolks. His skin is creased and sunburned, though it's been months since he did field work. What you got in mind coming here? Sunday leans against the countertop by the stove and crosses his arms and the pistol dangles. His thumb crosses the hammer. I look at Liz. At some point, she's going to decide what she wants to do. And she's in the house where it all happened. The refuge that was the site of her terror at the hands of a man whose politics maybe included her in the town's ostracism. She's a cagey creature, this girl who doesn't know how to be a girl. She glances at me and suddenly I'm in Bert's Bert Howdazart's kitchen at the table. Jordan's at my elbow and Gwen is opposite and she's got that same stare as Liz does now. She's looking straight at the center of the table. Her jaw is set but her brow is soft. And there's concentration in her eyes but not anger. Her heart's probably beating like a rabbit flush from the briar but outward she's spaced out and for the life of me I'll never understand how the fuck a man can do that to a girl. And there's Sunday. Speak of the devil. The man at the head of the family defending it. He's three steps away, but ten times stronger and faster than me, but there are more guns on my side of the battlefront, and frankly, I don't give a shit. Liz, are you going to kill him or what? I'm watching him, but at my peripheral right, I see her face swing to me. Sunday's eyebrows rumble with an earthquake of rage. His face splits at the jaw, and he raises his pistol to me. Liz says, no! Clutches her rifle on the table. She points at her father. Don't, she says. I'm the only one with a gun who isn't pointing it. I hold his withering gaze and the barrel aimed at me is a dot below his right eye. He's boresighting me, but the muzzle is no more alarming than the knob on the cupboard behind him. His eyes flicker to Liz and his rage tinges a different shade as he recognizes her treason. My throat is raspy. Your son is dead. Are you happy to know your daughter will make it out alive? This is how you do your old man? He leers at Liz. With a shifting attention, the muzzle drifts. I look at Liz. I can't, she says. I fall left and swing the Craig level. Sunday fires his pistol. The muzzle explodes into orange. The shot cracks past my head. Liz screams. I cock the Craig and fire. The rifle erupts and the cupboard behind Sunday must have been filled with dishes. I smell powder land on my bad arm. Miss Sunday and he lines up his pistol in my face. The sight posts obscure his eye. He's being careful and slow. Goodbye, Liz says. 
She fires from her hip and Sunday jerks back. He stares as if unhit, though the blood on the wall belies him. A red blot expands in the center of his chest. His eyes flip from me to her and back. He musters his strength and lifts his weapon arm, fires again. The bullet crashes into the floor behind me. He drops. Liz lands her rifle on the table, circles to her father and stands above him. She kneels and takes his hand. Sunday chokes and each breath is choppy, drowning in blood, sucking up the fear, standing on the edge of the unknown, yet with the absolute certitude his future won't be pleasant. Maybe that's the way Gwen felt the first time she heard her bedroom door open in the middle of the night. Maybe Liz. I watch and his chest rises, his hand flops, leg spasms. Die, will you? I crawl to my knees and my feet, kick away the gun by his hand. Tears fall from Liz's eye and I say, you want to finish this? And she shakes her head and plug your ears. She plugs your ear closest to the rifle and leaves her other hand on her father's. I place the Craig muzzle to his forehead. No, he grunts. Fuck him. Um, our next reader uh, is going to be uh, David James, K or, uh, excuse me, James Ward Kirk. Um, James Ward Kirk is a local horror writer and runs the small press James Ward Kirk Publishing. His most recent publication is Fresh Fear, edited by William Cook and contains some of the biggest, best names in horror. His website is jwkfiction.com. He lives it with Monica, a visual artist, his wife of 23 years and a chihuahua named Lucy, who dresses like Jim Belushi in the Blues Brothers movie. I would like to see that. Do you have a picture? He's got two pictures, okay. He has multiple story publications and is currently writing a crime novel with William Cook entitled Stark Fear. Um, I met James a couple of years ago. Um, he was kind enough to make me a, a guest editor on for Indiana Horror, I think 2012? Yeah. Yeah, 2012, which was a great experience. Um, I had a lot of fun. Yeah, and uh, also uh, uh, he published a story of mine in Indiana Crime, which is a uh, uh, an annual publication that he is a part of as well. Um, so I'm not sure what he's reading tonight, but James, if you want to come up, he's our next uh, reader for the hunt. Supernatural element 
So I had no choice but to throw him a Kodiak bear. And this is not anything literary. It's just for the fun of it. Um, the story is called uh, Me and Sister Murphy. And it was written by myself, James Orkirk, and Murphy Edwards. Okay. Hopefully I can see this well enough to read. Okay. The old saying is, is that poetry is meant to be heard. No one ever said that about fiction, and I think there's a reason why, but I'll do the best I can with this. Okay, here we go. Me and Sister Mercy entered the alibi at the same time. She was in her habit, sleeves down as if entering a chapel, but concealing her Colt 45. And I was wishing that a nun walking into a bar might distract the onlookers from me. No luck. Either my fedora or the cross-shaped scar on my right cheek gave me away, or the throbbing vein in my arm. Sister Mercy made for her 45 and started shooting, my Glock joining in symphony. Frank Sinatra was singing, and the cheap-ass jukebox was doing him no favors. Thankfully, a stray slug shut him down. Um, the mook behind the bar came up with a 12-gauge, but before he could rack the action and bring it to life, two of Mercy's slugs ripped through his chest and put him to sleep. I concentrated on the three dinks on the far corner pretending to nurse their beers. There were rows of tens, twenties, and fifties neatly stacked on the center of the table. Next to the cash was a St. Dominic's donation box with the metal lid pried open and loose change spilling out onto the floor. The guy in the center had a 38 in one hand and a bag, baggie of China White in the other. I leveled my 9mm aiming at center mass. He thumbed the hammer back. His lips curled into a sinister grin. Behind me, Sister Mercy began to laugh. There was no humor in it. Back in the pioneer days, staggering into an Indiana saloon or tavern was known to be a risky proposition. One day, a drunken barkeep ran out a pair of swing doors, waving his prize over his head and slurred, Who's here? Lending to the moniker Hoosier. Indiana hasn't changed. And I got my scar from a Pentecostal girl over in St. Joseph County. I told her how she was pretty and asked for a kiss. She caught me in the face with the pointy part of a leg cross because I was paying more attention to her knee shooting toward my crotch. That's how I met Sister Mercy. She put the stitches in. And this is uh, all Sister Mercy's fault. I'm a second story man and Sister Mercy is the walk through the door with a lock type. Sister Mercy doesn't like grave robbers. If the good sin, if the good sis hadn't hoisted me out of the St. Joe gutter and tended my wounds, I might not be swapping lead with a pack of lunatic dopers in the alibi. Faith can be a cool bitch sometimes. Marcy didn't preach, or Mercy didn't preach to me about the evils of loose women and strong drink. 
Instead, she cleaned the gash on my face with holy water and closed it up with a sewing needle and heavy thread. I told her my name is Nick Punches and I had pressing business and need, that needed tended to. She placed a callous finger on my forehead, crossed herself with her other hand and said, your business is with me, you have been chosen. Now, in this bullet-riddled shithole of a bar, she was, advancing, she was advancing on the crew in the corner, her healing hands filled with enough rapid-fire hardware to take on a platoon. I followed her into the fray, outgunned by a nun. You never know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. After a minute, the only sound left in the room was the chalkboard creaking on the wall, holding on by a single rusty nail. The bored asshole patrons used to check in and out of the alibi. Frank the bartender never had no use for IDs, so anyone could sign in or out using any name. And every conniving patron in the bar at the time of any cop investigation would swear to Christ that person was there the night and hours in question. The air was acrid, like burning matches and dry as gunpowder. Sister Mercy padded over to the chalkboard, stilled its movement, movement, bent daintily at the knees, picked up a piece of bloody chalk, stood, and marked a cross on the board. Sister Mercy lived to serve God's purposes. She said a prayer before crossing herself. Then she reloaded. God works in mysterious ways, I've heard, and so does Sister Mercy. Now I know that now I know what it must now I know what it must be like to be in a Bruce Lee movie. Me and Sister Mercy had just wiped out a room full of wannabe thugs, but behind the next door waited something even meaner. Tiny Tim. This guy an oxymoron. I read on the internet. I read, I read on the internet a lot, especially if I'm doing a stint. An oxymoron means putting two words together contradictory to the other, like jumbo shrimp or bad sex. Tiny Tim is five feet three inches of steel and blade. He has big ears and the tip of his nose is cut off by a hooker named Big Betty for, for shortchanging her when he was 16. He learned about a lot about knives from Big Betty. Tiny Tim's also known for his love of Spider-Man. He just never knew which direction Tiny Tim was going to make, make a move on from. And after Tiny Tim, Adnoxus waited, the dealer of death and his pet bear. A bear? I mean, we're talking Adnonius here. This festering pile of muscle and dog could have picked anything from the underworld for a pet. A demonic succubus, a rabbit, hydra, even an ant farm full of poisonous sandwiches. No, he had to go stalking around with a Kodiak bear on a log chain. I waded through the bloody mess on the floor and opened the door to add Nexus's outer office. Sister, Cersei, Sister Mercy followed me in, quiet like a silencer. My Glock was pointed at the ceiling, expecting Tiny Tim to drop like a hungry recluse on a strand of silk. But 
Tiny Tim was waiting in a chair behind the secretary's desk with a nod toward Agnonius. The chair offered no armrests. Status has its privileges. A throwing knife caught Sister Mercy in the left shoulder, but as the pain and power of the throw slung her to the left, God bless her, she raised the colt in her right hand and sent a slug into Tiny Tim's brain. His hair and gray matter splattered upon the mahogany door leading into Agnos' office. I yanked a knife from Sister Mercy's shoulder. Sometimes yanking is the only way of doing things. Sister Mercy moved toward Tiny Tim, praying and drawing a cross on his cheek with her own blood. Me, I would have just kicked him out of the way. Sister Mercy, her act of kindness and forgiveness complete, gave me a, w a wink and kicked Tiny Tim out of the way. With 10 rounds left in the 9mm and three extra clips, I figured I had about a 2% chance of putting Adonis down before he went medieval. That's when the thug on top of the blood soaked pile behind me, and this, the blood still seeping from 18 holes in his chest, raised up and snatched me by the scruff of my neck. Sorry, I lost my spine. Okay. Now Sister Mercy, like all good women of the cloth, was an excellent teacher. She talked, you listened in the story. And she'd always kept, kept me on in the loop until today. Mercy had neglected to tell me, in addition to Tiny Tim and Ed Noxus, one of the power peddling crew we were dispatched was a blend. To most people that don't who don't know who don't mean Jack's to most people that don't mean Jack Squat. It didn't to me either the first time I heard it. Then Mercy explained it. Her description of a blunt had me wishing she'd left me slumped in that St. Joseph County gutter with a ripped up face and a broken heart. She said blunts were Satan's version of the SS, which meant they could blend in, look like anybody act like anybody, walk and talk like anybody, even smell like anybody. Once they blended in, their job was to wreak as much havoc on the population as possible. Sister Mercy said our job was to send them back to hell. I just wanted them dead. My finger tightened on the trigger, my eyes darting. I had no plant, I had no plant, I had no plant. I pulled it to the trigger. One plant down and dead again, I heard him scream like in a dream. Only one door left, Adnosis's. Sister Mercy nodded, I knocked. The door to Adnosis's inner office opened like a maw. The bear inched forward, cinching the chain tight around its neck. Adnosis roared, there is nothing here for you, holy woman. Gather your pathetic, pathetic lackey and go. Mercy's eyes tightened. You know what we've come for. Adam Exus left a, let out a slobbery grunt and pointed to the money on the bloody floor. Take your measly donation box full of chump change and get out. 
Sister Mercy could give a rat's ass about the contents of a metal charity box from St. Dominic's. She was here for something far more precious. You have desecrated the catacombs of Blessed Heart Cemetery, Cemetery said Mercy. Sins against the church can be forgiven. Sins against the dead cannot. And Noxus withdrew a maul from the scabbard strapped to his back. The steel head was shaped like a pyramid, razor sharp on one end, dead flat on the other, and covered with dried blood and clumps of hair. One of Tiny Tim's blades whistled past my ear and shattered the chalkboard. Behind me, the blimp pulled another knife from dead Tommy's belt and cocked his arm to throw. Sister Mercy screamed, the bear lunged. Shit. I gave, I gave the blunt a shot to the forehead. He, lo he looked at me as if I'd whacked him on the bottom with a flyswatter. We take what we want, said the blunt. You can't stop us, not you and not the nun, he said, launching the knife at Sister Mercy. I popped him in the eye. He went down, but I knew he'd be back. Sister Mercy caught the knife and sold it at Nexus. He swatted it to the floor like a grain of sand. What we took from Blessed Heart, hearts is of no concern to you. Mercy's face hardened. It is sacred. That makes it my concern. To you it is sacred. To the hope, to us it holds great power. And your friend had Noxus asked, aiming the Kodiak toward me. I hear is here to make sure we leave with it, said Mercy. Adnondas placed his maw on the desk. He bent to the floor behind him and lifted a large ornate chest. He slammed it on the desk next to the maw, unchained the bear, and said, come get it. People really should read the internet. A maw is a heavy hammer and also known as a clock splitter. And I know Sister Mercy doesn't scream in fear. Both Adnexus and the bear turned towards Sister Mercy. I lunged past her and the bear, grabbed the maul, turned, and smashed the, the plant in the head. The plant was dying as sure Sister Mercy was singing Born Free. I remember the movie. I think it was about a lion or a tiger. The tune captivated the bear. The grand beast stopped its rumbling, plopped on its ass, and began swaying with the music like a drunken sailor. I couldn't blame him, really. Sister Mercy has a fine set of pipes. Adnoxus became enraged. He picked up the maw and hit the bear on the shoulder, snapping the bear from his fixation on Sister Mercy. Ever heard the expression? Poke a bear with a stick. The bear chewed on and makes his head as if it were a popcorn ball. With Sister Mercy being busy and all with the bear, and that knocks us no longer an obstacle, I, play, I padded over and grabbed the chest. I backed out of the room. A moment later, Sister Mercy joined me. She left the door open and I could see the bear sleeping and scoring like a former cellmate of mine. Back at the church, the chest lying open upon the altar, Sister Mercy in prayer beside me, I opened the chest. 
Inside I saw my soul in a needle, fucking heroin. Sister Mercy entered with prayers. You are free now, Nick Punches, and upward I soared. I'm doing a reading of fiction, and I'm sorry if um, it was amateurish because I'm an amateur at it. But it's a great story if you get a chance to read it sometime. I uh, gave a copy of the book that it was published in to a young lady here. And I think Chris has it now, and it'll be part of the drawing. So thanks, thanks a lot. Okay, so that was Clayton Lindemuth and James Ward Kirk reading at Noir at the Bar, Indianapolis. Yeah, um, I won that book, you know. You remember that, right? <laughs> it was so weird. It felt so rigged because it was the very first. There was a giveaway that they were that they were doing, so everybody got tickets, and and they were giving away. They were doing a drawing, like almost after every re every reader, um, which we cut out um, for the for the episodes here. Um, or it would have had to have been five episodes. Um, and the very first giveaway they do is Clayton's book, and they call out the number, and I look down, and it's Livius's ticket. Yep. Yeah, I knew I was going to win. I knew I was going to be called first, too. I just had that feeling. So, uh, <laughs> cold, quiet country now. Now, talked a little bit about uh, with Clayton about possibly reviewing the book. Now, if most of you guys remember, our schedule is pretty packed at this point. But I now have a copy that I'm going to peruse. And I will say this, and not that I... Uh, typically reveal conversations that are had off the show with writers but uh after this whole thing um during uh during dinner two very well um respected writers both said that this book is the real deal so talk about uh piquing my curiosity um there it is there it is indeed and then you got james ward kirk i was uh i wasn't <laughs> i didn't know what to expect because again we didn't know him um and so when he started off his story, I mean, it kind of just hits the ground running with um, kind of the, th I'm trying to think of the best way to say, like the, the level of intensity that's going to have for the whole, the whole ride. And immediately I was just so charmed by just how, how off the wall the whole thing was. Yeah, like I said, and it was it was very cool because very typically, um, you know, we go to readings and, and, you know, it's usually kind of one format and a lot of it's crime and it's pretty straight. You know, sometimes it's a little funny. But but it pretty much follows you know a very serious storyline um, unless you're David James Keaton, <laughs> but uh, so this was a nice twist you know to to have kind of a supernatural slash crime story and, and gun toting nuns man I mean how do you go wrong? Outgunned by a nun, and a Kodiak bear doesn't hurt either. No 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 it doesn't <laughs> at all. So um, that's gonna do it right. Part one all done. That all is so up. easy. Yeah, this is so easy for, for us to just kind of talk shit about some writers for a little bit and, and not have to do a whole bunch of, of work. So um, tune in tomorrow. Um, part two of Noir at the Bar, Indiana, will be featuring Jedediah Ayers, longtime friend of this podcast, and CJ Edwards, the MC and organizer for the event. Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. Keep reading.